You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Father, we pray that you'd bless your word to us this morning. We're, we're so thrilled to be able to worship you. We're thrilled to be able to share in these aspects of our life together as a community, as a congregation. But now, Lord, now we pray that you'd speak to us through your word. You're so faithful to do it every week. Come and speak, Lord, for we are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we begin in Acts chapter 10, and we're going to cover about the first, well, if I make it through my notes, we'll be covering the first 23 verses of this chapter. And I find this section to be one of the most exciting and fascinating passages in the entire book of Acts, in the entire New Testament, because it deals with something that's a very deep and profound question You could say that last chapter, Acts chapter 9, we saw the very dramatic conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who later on we know more famously as Paul the Apostle, one as being his Hebrew name, one being his Roman name. So last chapter we had the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Now we have the conversion of Peter. You say, well, what do you mean by the conversion of Peter? I thought Peter was Peter was one of the original disciples and one of the apostles. He's the guy who preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost. He brought other people unto Jesus. What, what's his conversion? Well, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is converted to, from being a man who had a rather narrow conception of, of what God could do in the life of other people. And God's going to convert him. God's going to change Peter as radically or perhaps more radically even than he changed the Apostle Paul and as when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. Did you know that sometimes the greatest miracles that God does, it isn't so much changing, and I'm just going to use the terminology, if this terminology doesn't sound comfortable to you, then just forgive me, but I think you'll know what I mean. Sometimes the greatest transformation God does isn't changing some sinner into a saint, Sometimes the greatest transformation God does is in changing some hardened, crusty saint into somebody full of a bigger heart and warm love. That's exactly or or, or somewhat of what we see happening with Peter's life right now. So let's take a look right here. Verse 1, we begin. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Acts chapter 10 begins with an introduction to a man named Cornelius. Now, what do we know about this man? Well, first of all, we know he lived in Caesarea. Caesarea was a predominantly Roman city on the shores of the Mediterranean. It's in Judea, and it was the headquarters of the Roman governor of the province of Judea. Now, this is after the time of Pontius Pilate. He's earlier in New Testament history. But when Pontius Pilate governed over Judea, he governed from Caesarea. He would visit Jerusalem at feast times, but but he governed out of Caesarea. This was just the Roman headquarters in Judea. Well, that's the first thing we know about where he lived. He lived in Caesarea. Secondly, we know his name, Cornelius and that he was a centurion in what was called the Italian Regiment. He was an officer in the Roman army. Now, he was therefore a loyal servant of the oppressors of Israel. And most every patriotic Jewish person of that day would naturally be prejudiced against Cornelius. You ever been one of those, what do they call them, melodrama plays, you know? 
where when the bad guy comes on the, the, the stage, everybody does what? They go, boo, or a hiss, right? Well, if you were a normal Jew of this time, you're reading verses 1 and 2, and you're, out, you're making the sound, boo and hiss, in your mind when Cornelius comes on the stage. He's a bad guy. He's wearing the wrong color hat. He's wearing the wrong kind of uniform. He's a Roman soldier, right? So right away, we're, we're a little bit uneasy here. This is Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Now, verse 2 tells us something that would seem to be contradictory to what we learned in verse 1. Verse 2 tells us that he was a devout man and one who feared God. See, Cornelius was a devout man. He feared God and he prayed to God always, and he even gave alms generously to those who were in need. I want you to think about that for a moment. He, he would have grown up as a typical Roman, right? He would have grown up in the presence and in the community of these Roman pagan gods, right? There would be Jupiter and Augustus and Mars and Venus, but, but whatever it was, he found those gods unsatisfying. And, and very possibly, as he was stationed in, well, what the Romans called Palestine, when he was stationed in Judea, he came into some familiarity with the God of Israel. And he realized, this is the true God. All these pagan gods that we Romans worship, they're empty. They're vain. These pagan gods are, are just as filled with immorality. They're just as filled with human weakness and jealous and bitterness and spite and, and, and all these other things. These gods give us nothing to aspire to. They're false gods. But this God that is preached in Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is the true God. And he became a man who feared God. You see, in those days, they had a category of what the Jews called God-fearers. We're going to run into this throughout the book of Acts. So just remember that they had this idea of those who were God-fearers. And these were Gentiles who loved the God of Israel. And they were sympathetic to and supportive of the Jewish faith. Yet they stopped short of becoming full Jews in lifestyle, and especially in circumcision. I mean, that's what would have been required. Cornelius, you really want to become a Jew? Okay, first of all, you have to become circumcised. Secondly, you have to adopt the complete Jewish lifestyle in diet, in career, in, in customary things. Everything you have to do has to reflect the Jewish lifestyle and being under the Jewish law. And a guy like Cornelius would say, well, listen, I, I respect the God of Israel. I, I respect the word of God, but I just can't go all the way and do that. You see, the Jewish people at that time, they respected and appreciated these God-fearing Gentiles, but they couldn't really share their life and homes and food with them because they were still, in fact, Gentiles and they were not actually Jews. Somebody, a Jewish person at that time, Cornelius, good, we're, we're, we're glad that you love us. We're glad that you respect our God. We're glad that you read our scriptures. But listen, Cornelius, look, at the end of the day, you're still a Gentile and I'm still a Jew. That means that there's a gulf between us. We can't eat at the same table. Even if you're eating kosher food, we can't eat at the same table because your table would have had unkosher food upon it. Your plates would have had unkosher food upon it. You can't come and stay in my house because you're unclean. As nice as you may be, Cornelius, as a good as a man, at the end of the day, Cornelius, you are an unclean man and you're a Gentile 
we can't really share our lives together. Isn't there no tragedy in that, right? Here's Cornelius, God-fearing man. He prays, he gives, he seeks after the God of Israel. Yet there's a great gulf between him and the Jewish community that day. By the way, isn't it fascinating? There in verse 2 it says that he prayed to God always. He had a relationship with God. But at the same time, he was not part of mainstream Jewish life. So what happens? Verse 3, let's take a look together. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Very specific vision that God gave to Cornelius, right? He's praying at about the ninth hour of the day. Now, I know very clearly that verse 3 does not say specifically that he was praying. But later, as uh, Cornelius recounts this experience, he's going to tell us that he was praying. So just take my word for it. It was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he was praying. And what happened? He had this vision. And he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God, according to verse 3. It wasn't a dream. But neither did it actually happen. This was a vision that came in the mind's eye of Cornelius. In other words, he didn't actually see it with his physical eyes, but neither was it a dream. It was sort of, I don't know exactly how you describe it, something like a dream that would happen while you're still awake, while you're praying, something like that. And what happened? Verse 3, in the dream, an angel came and said, Cornelius, isn't that beautiful? I don't want to make too much of this, but it's so wonderful that God and Cornelius were on a first-name basis. He could just say, Cornelius. He spoke to Cornelius directly, even calling him by name. And by the way, did you see Cornelius's response? His response was wonderful because the first thing was, was he was afraid. Did you know that's a good thing? It's not a bad thing to have some, some apprehension to come into the presence of God. To, to come up and meet with them so closely. First, he was afraid. That's a good thing. And secondly, is even better. He said, what is it, Lord? What is it? I'm here. I'm ready. I'm receptive to whatever you have to say to me. Speak to me, God. Cornelius had a real relationship with God. And then in verse 5, he says, send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Now, I, I'm going to guess. I can't say this for certain. And I sort of debated it back and forth in my mind a little bit. But I'm going to guess that Cornelius didn't even know who Peter was. Maybe he would have heard about him. I don't know. But, but I'm going to guess. I don't know who this Peter is. So God gives him very specific instructions. His name is Peter, but his surname is P Simon. Or is it the other way? Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's in Joppa. He's staying with a tanner who's also his name is Simon. And their house is by the sea. Okay, good. You know exactly where you can find him. But when you find this man, Peter, notice what it says in verse 5. It's verse 6, I mean. It says, he will tell you what he must do. I think it's fascinating. All right. I don't mean to spoil the story for you here. Because I love it when the Bible builds up its suspense. But Cornelius is going to come to a full and knowledgeable faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to believe in the good news, the gospel. 
That's going to happen. Well, we'll get to it later. But that's going to happen. But I want you to notice something. God did not use an angel to bring the gospel to Cornelius, right? He used a man. And I would say, I I can't say that this is 100%, but it's 99.5, 99.9% God's way, right? That God may use some supernatural things to drink, but who does he use to share the gospel? People. Living, breathing, speaking, loving human beings just like yourself and all the people around you. It would have been very easy for God just to use the angel to preach the gospel, right? But he didn't. He used the angel to direct Cornelius to a man who would bring him the gospel. And that's exactly how God wanted it to be done. He will tell you what he must do. Okay, so great. What does Cornelius do? Verse 7. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, great. I got to speak to this Peter guy. For whatever reason, the text doesn't really tell us, but for whatever reason, Cornelius himself couldn't go, right? So he sends forth a couple of servants and a Roman soldier. I want you to go to Joppa and bring this man Peter back because apparently he has something to tell me from God. Okay, great. That's what verses 7 and 8 tell us. Now take a look at what's happening. Meanwhile, all of this is happening. Now verse 9. Peter, it says, The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Wasn't that just fantastic? Here's the next day. The guys have gone from Caesarea, sent by Cornelius, right? you got two household servants and a soldier, and they're on their way to Joppa to go tell Peter that Cornelius wants to see him. And as they're doing this, Peter goes up on the housetop to pray, right? And as he goes up on the housetop to pray, nothing strange about that. It's not like he, you know, was fighting with his wife, and so he goes up on the roof or something. In that culture, in those days, oftentimes a housetop would be like a patio. And oftentimes they would have like an awning up on the patio. Not always, but often an awning up on there. And you'd sit up on the housetop. It's a little higher up. It gets a little cooler breeze. There, Joppa, there on the ocean, right off the ocean, catches a nice breeze. You're under the awning. It's a great place to go up and pray. He goes up and he prays. And isn't this beautiful how human Peter is, how just like you and I, what happens? He gets down to prayer and what does he feel? He gets hungry. This is just like you and I. By the way, I don't know if this was such a great morning to have the breakfast burrito thing going on when we're talking about being hungry while you're praying. But isn't that just human nature, right? Matter of fact, this hunger was very distracting. Notice what it says there in verse 10. It says, he became very hungry and wanted to eat. I mean, that amplifies it, right? I mean, you can be hungry or you can be very hungry. And you can be very hungry and really want to to eat. I mean, that's just a very human thing. At least it's human to me. Man, my wife, Inga Lil, she observes it all the time. <laughs> when I'm hungry, I'm hungry and I want something to eat. I don't want something to eat in a half hour, right? Or She can wait. I can't. It's like I'm hungry now. I want something to eat now. And especially when it hits you and you pray. And I'm sure Peter's thinking, no, this is a huge distraction. No, I don't want to think about this. No, I shouldn't be thinking about hunger. But you know what's beautiful about that? God would even use his hunger right then. 
Because God's going to give him a vision, and the vision will be connected to his hunger. Matter of fact, you could say, well, look at it right there, verse 10. It says that he fell into a strand. God used these very distractions to speak to Peter, and he fell into a trance. And look what happens now at verse 11. It says, then he saw heaven opened, and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. And you understand what's happening here? There he is just really hungry there on the housetop, right? He's in the midst of prayer, but he's so distracted by his hunger. And then instantly he falls into a trance. This is something like a vision that he had right then. And what happens in this, this vision, this trance, verse 12 tells us that he sees something like a sheet, right? You know, maybe it was the awning that was over his head. I mean, if there was such, it would have been common. We're not told that there was, but something like a sheet over his head, suspended by the four corners. And then what happens on that sheet? He sees all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. He saw all sorts of animals, some of them kosher and some of them non-kosher. Now, do you understand the difference between kosher and non-kosher? The the Jewish people, both in the ancient world and today, had all sorts of dietary regulations. Now, I, I wish I could tell you that these dietary regulations were based strictly upon the Old Testament law, but not really. I mean, some of them are based directly upon the Old Testament law, such as do not eat pork. That's what was commanded in the Old Testament law. But, but then other ones are just based on interpretations and outworkings of modern day applications of that. But, but in general, there's a whole system of kosher dietary laws. And Peter was a faithful Jew. Peter felt that as a man who was a follower of Jesus, he had not rejected his Judaism one bit. He was still a man who wanted to honor the God of Israel. And so to this point, he had never eaten a piece of bacon. To this point, yes, I know, that's an outrage to some people. It's just, oh, it strikes the heart in a horrible way, doesn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, lobster had never crossed his lips. A pork chop, don't even think of it. I mean, it it was just, he kept kosher, right? And so now he sees a sheep falling down in front of him. There's all sorts of, well, there's a nice, you know, pork hog right there. There's a nice lobster on it, you know, just beckoning with its claw. Eat me, eat me. Then, of course, there's other things, I'm sure. There's some clean animals on there. There's a nice, proper, you know, uh, steer or something like that. And, and what he sees this, and he hears a voice says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And you see what he, he, he thought? Perhaps, I think, that he was being tested. Because what's his immediate response? No way. No, Lord. It's like, ooh, I get this. God is testing me. He's trying to get me to eat something that's not kosher, and I'm going to give the right answer. And the right answer is, no, Lord, I won't eat those things. Never a piece of bacon, never some lobster. No, Lord, I'll only eat kosher things. Isn't this interesting how easy it was for those words to come off Peter's lips 
Not so, Lord. He said no to his Lord. Those two things don't really go together, right? What are they called? They're called an oxymoron, right? Two words that shouldn't necessarily go together. No and Lord don't go together, do they? Because if, if the person's really your Lord, you just say yes. Yes, Lord. Matter of fact, Peter had a bad habit of telling Jesus no. Didn't he? Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross. What does Peter say? No, Lord, don't go to the cross. And Jesus had to rebuke him. Peter, Jesus tells Peter, I want to wash your feet. What does Peter say? No, Lord, don't wash my feet. Peter just found it a little too easy. Now I find this wonderful because the, those two instances I just read, when Jesus was going to go to the cross and Peter said, no, Lord, when Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet and, and Peter said, no, Lord, those two instances, I would say, happened before Peter's conversion, before Peter was filled with the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. But now this is well after Peter is converted. Well, after Peter is filled with God's spirit on the day of Pentecost. And you know what it shows us? It shows us that Peter is still Peter. Now, he saved Peter. He's converted Peter. He's being transformed. He's getting better, Peter. But you know what? He's still Peter. And God's still working these things in and through him. He was saved. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He had been greatly used by God, but at the same time, he was same Peter. God did not use Peter because he was perfect, but because he was going in the right direction and he made himself available to God's service. Now, God did this. The the sheet comes down. He sees the animals arise, Peter, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? Not so, Lord. And so what does God do? Verse 15 tells us. And a voice spoke again a second time saying what? What God has cleansed, you must not call common. That's God's lesson to Peter in this. Peter, what I have cleansed, do not call common. What I have declared clean, you must not declare to be impure, unholy, or unacceptable to God. You see, in Old Testament thinking, they, they, they played off of two different concepts. There was the holy and there was the common. The holy was made common when it came into contact with something common. If you were a holy person and you came into contact with a dead body, you were declared to be common and you had to go through some kind of ritual cleansing, whereas you could be made holy again. But when something was made holy, it's called consecration. When something is made common, it's called desecration. You know what God's saying? God's saying to Peter, I'm doing a work of making things clean and holy. Don't call it common. You see, at this point, Peter believed that God was speaking only about food. But shortly, God was going to show Peter that what he's really getting at is another point entirely. God was not contradicting his word, but he was emphasizing his power to make something clean, his power to transform something. And along the way, it became clear to Peter later on, just in verse 28, which we won't get to this morning. But in verse 28, Peter makes it very clear that he understands by then, God's talking about people, not food. You see, God's making something clear here. Anybody can come to Jesus and be cleansed. Anybody. Now, did you know that that's a radical idea in the ancient world? 
You, you may think, well, so what? Everybody knows that. Anybody can come to Jesus and be cleansed. Listen, in the ancient world, that's an absolutely radical idea because this is basically what they thought. The Roman gods are for the Romans. The Jewish gods are for the Jews. Uh, you know, the, the Syrian gods are for the Syrians. The Egyptian gods are for the Egyptians. Everybody has their localized gods, and that's how it works in the world. And Christianity came along and said, no, there's one God over the whole world, and everybody will be saved by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. It's one uh, God for the Jews and for the Gentiles, one God for the Romans and the Egyptians, one God for the educated and the uneducated, one God for the rich and one for the poor. It's one God over all the world, and no one is unreachable by that God. No one is unchangeable by that God. This was a radical idea in Peter's day. It's so radical that Peter didn't immediately latch onto it, because look at what it says in verse 16. This was done three times. Hard-headed Peter, right? Peter was still Peter. It happened once. Not so, Lord. What I have called clean, don't you call common. Do you get it, Peter? Uh, no, not really. Okay, run it again, God says. <laughs> run it again a three times. For deep emphasis, God repeated this vision three times. Peter was to regard this as important. He knew that it was important. I believe, though, he didn't really understand all that it meant, but he would shortly. Now, verse 17, we read. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. Well, Peter thought about the vision. The spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Well, this is another way that the Holy Spirit was speaking to Peter, right? There he is. He's up on the house up. He's thinking, man, what's this vision mean? I've never eaten lobster my whole life. I've never eaten pork. And here God says, arise, kill and eat. Well, what I've called clean, you must not call common. And he did it three times. Lord, what are you trying to say through all this? And while he's thinking about it, God says, well, Peter, stop thinking about that. Three men are coming to the house. You're to go with them. Don't doubt a thing. You just go with them. So what happens? The vision ended. He didn't have it all figured out. But he said, listen, I want you to go. Now, what I find fascinating about verses 19 and 20, where he says, three men are seeking you and go down with them, asking nothing, but because I have sent them. I think what's fascinating about that is to this point, God has not told Peter that his visitors were Gentiles. Now, normally you should know this. A godly Jew like Peter would not associate in that manner with Gentiles. And knowing this, and knowing Peter's somewhat reluctance, right, saying, not so, Lord, God simply surprised Peter with the knowledge. He goes down and he opens up the door. And what does he see? Well, look at here, verse 21. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius and Centurion, a just man who fears God and has good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. This is amazing. Can you let the movie run in your head? 
Peter, three men are coming to your door. Listen, don't ask questions. I've sent them. Just go with them, doubting nothing. He hears the doorbell ring. Okay, I suppose they didn't have doorbells, but something, right? He runs down and he's wondering, wouldn't you be, wouldn't it be driving you crazy? Who's behind that door? Who am I going to see? And he's just, who could it be? It's probably three guys from Jerusalem, right? Three of my fellow apostles. There it is. It's going to be James and Andrew and John, right? I love those guys. I'm not going to doubt anything. I'm just going to go with them. Or or maybe it's Philip, Philip the evangelist. He lived in Caesarea. Maybe it's him and a couple of whoever. He opens up the door and I think his jaw drops when he sees two Gentiles. By the way, he would have known they were Gentiles just by the way they were dressed. Two Gentiles and what? And a Roman soldier dressed up like a Roman soldier. And God said, you go with them. Don't ask any questions. I wonder if Peter's thinking, are there three guys behind you? Are there another three guys around here? I mean, those must have been the three. And so what was his response? It says, verse 21, he went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius, and he must have been shocked when he opened the door. And he would have known immediately that they were not Jews, but he should go with them. And the idea, listen, notice what God said. What did God say about these men? I have sent them. Instantly, Peter's mind is blown. God, you sent some Gentiles? You're using them? Absolutely. So verse 22, to summon you to this house and to hear words from you. That's what the messenger said. They said, listen, we've been told to come and to bring you back to Caesarea so that you can speak to Cornelius. Could Peter pass up such an invitation? He, he really could, actually. That's why I think one of the most marvelous verses in the entire book of Acts is found in verse 23. Can you read this with me? It might have seemed unspectacular to you at the moment, but I want to show you how wonderful it is. Verse 23, then he invited them in and lodged them. Friends, this is what you have to understand. If you were a Jewish reader of this in the first century, when you read that, your mouth would drop open. What? Peter is a good Jewish man. He keeps kosher. You're not supposed to invite Gentiles into your house. You're not supposed to allow them to spend the night there. You see, and it didn't necessarily have to work out there. Normally, a Jew would have said something like this. Well, it's very nice to meet you guys, but but we need to stay out here in the street. You can't come inside. Or they might have said something like this. Well, glad you're here. Maybe I'll consider your proposition. There's a nice inn right down the street. Let me show you where it is. But Peter looks at these men and he says, God sent them. I need to swallow hard and say, okay, Lord, you're doing something in. I will invite them in and lodge them. By the way, lodge them is literally in the ancient Greek to entertain as a guest. He didn't just coldly give these Gentile visitors a room, but he entertained them as welcomed guests, and he did so against every custom of the Jewish people of that day. You know what he did? He took his book full of religious traditions, and he put it down next to his Bible, and he said, you know, the Bible doesn't tell me to treat Gentiles this way, but my religious traditions do. I guess I'll be willing to break with my religious traditions. You see, 
He was going against the customs, against the traditions of Israel, but not against God's word. And I believe that baby, at this very moment, God flooded Peter's heart with an understanding through the Old Testament that even though God's people were not supposed to become like their pagan neighbors, it also said that God wanted his people to be a light for all the nations. And that's exactly what Peter was determined to do. Two amazing things. They spent the night there. By the way, what a, what a weird thing, right? Who do you have in the house that night? You have an apostle, right? You have a tanner, which I haven't even discussed this week, but last week we discussed how tanners were out of the mainstream, right? Tanners were rejected. You had an apostle. You had a tanner. You had two household servants who were Gentiles. And then you had a Roman soldier. Oh, it sounds like a sitcom you could do in the ancient world, right? <laughs> It's like some weird, you know, house party kind of thing. These people don't belong together. They shouldn't be put together, but they were. And to glorious effect. And then verse 23. Oh, this is fantastic. It says, on the next day, Peter went away with them. You see, he wasn't supposed to do that according to the traditional script book, right? You don't invite Gentiles into your home. You don't go with them to somebody else's home. But Peter did. His heart was big enough to be changed and say, no, I'm going to go by what the word of God says, not by what my religious traditions say. And God, if you've declared these men clean, I'm not going to declare them unclean. There's a lot for us to build on in these themes, but let me just kind of conclude with this sort of comparison. Centuries before this, there was a Jewish man who came to Joppa. And he came to Joppa with a solemn message from God. And God gave him that message to bear to the Gentiles. And what did that prophet do who who came to Joppa centuries before? He said, no way I'm going to put myself on a ship to Tarshish because I don't want to hear or I don't want to deliver the message God wants me to bring to the Gentiles. Jonah was from Joppa. Isn't that interesting? Now, centuries after, God speaks to another man, another one of his prophets, and says, I want you to take my message to the Gentiles. And Peter says, probably swallowing hard, yes, Lord, I'll go. Jonah ran from God's call. He thought he could get away from the Lord, and he thought that he could not share God's heart for the lost. But Peter was willing to re-examine all those traditions and prejudices in light of God's word, and he shared God's heart for a lost world. I'll be honest, some people are more like Peter, some people are more like Jonah. But we, we need to have that Peter kind of heart. But listen, it all comes back to this, friends. It all comes back to the changing, transforming power of Jesus. I've got a great message. Jesus Christ can change your life. Now, that that message goes, and I think a lot of you say, yes, there's lots of people here who need their life changed by Jesus. I, I pray there's some real sinners, some real bad ones here today, and they can have their lives. Well, I pray there are some real bad sinners here today. And I'll tell you, Jesus can change your life. I say that without any hesitation. Wouldn't matter if you're the worst sinner here. Wouldn't matter if you're the worst sinner in this city. Jesus Christ can forgive you your sins and make you clean before him. I don't doubt that for a moment. But you know what? Ooh, you church people, Jesus Christ can change your life too. Because can't you get hardened in the same old things, right? 
Can't you just live your life with God on this automatic pilot and it gets so hardened, it gets so fast, you get so stuck in traditions, so stuck in things that aren't the firm ground of God's word, but it's rather that artificial cement of human traditions and just habits. I want to give hope to you right now. Jesus Christ can change even you, even you. I don't know what part of your life he needs to do that in. Why don't you let him speak to your heart about that and change that here this morning. Let's pray together about that right now and pray that God would speak to us about that.